Open up your Bibles, Genesis 12. I told you we're going to be camping out here for a while to get yourself comfortable, so that's what we're doing. And Genesis 12 is like a gold mine. It has, it's full of great, great opportunities, great, great truth. And we want to try and mine as much of that possible before we totally wear you out on Genesis 12. So we're going to try and do that a little bit here. And so today we're going to look at several passages. We're going to start in Genesis 12. We're going to go through the Bible as all these passages are connected. There's dotted lines that run through all these passages here. We're going to connect them together and learn, learn something about them together. So Genesis 12, let's read the passage that kind of like sets us off here. 1 through 3 is what it is. Let's start there. Now the Lord said to Abram, and I'm reading New American Standard. People often say, what do you read from? I'm reading from New American Standard. So you read wherever you want to, um, what, what you're reading from. It's verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those, and I will, and I will curse who curses you. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed." That right there is just this amazing passage that takes Genesis 3, you know, 12 through 15, takes Genesis 3, and it brings it, today, it brings it forth, it puts it on the stage and it says, now remember what I told you in Genesis 3? Well, here in Genesis 12, I'm telling you how I'm beginning to do that. I'm opening up the curtain a little bit more. I'm showing you a little bit more about how I am going to redeem mankind back to myself. How everything that was broken in Genesis 3, I'm showing you in Genesis 12 how we're beginning to put it back together. You can imagine the stage up here and that the curtain is closed. And then and in Genesis 3, the curtain cracks open. And here we are in Genesis 12 and the curtain cracks open a little bit more. And then when we get to Matthew chapter 1, I mean the curtain is full blown. And it's just glory pouring out of that stage because the secret is known. The mystery is known. The Messiah, the one who was promised in Genesis 3, has been brought forth in Matthew 1, Luke 1, the Gospels. And here we are in Genesis 12. He's beginning to show more about that. This covenant, this, these three verses here are called the Abrahamic covenant. It's one of several covenants in the Bible, approximately eight, depending on how you count them and all. And there are five times where this covenant is talked about, where God brings it up to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, in verse 7 here, um, in verse 7 he goes on, he says, And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to, to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then later on in chapter 13, again, he restates the promise in verses 14 through 17. And in this particular time he says, that all this land is yours. He kind of defines. He says, all this land is yours. And he said, your seed, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. Then in chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, it's a much longer passage. And there he says, he says your descendants are going to be strangers in another land. I'm just telling you ahead of time what's going to happen. And in this passage, is this, this sacrificial custom is opened up for us, and we, we learn about it where they take the animals and they, they slaughter them, they split them, and, you walk, and the parties are supposed to walk between the animals, and that's this blood covenant, 
blood is shed to seal the covenant and to say, this is it. It'd be akin, like when I was a kid, I thought it was so cool when the cowboy and the Indian really liked each other and they'd cut their hand and then they'd shake hands, you know. And it's like that blood covenant, oh, you know, it can never be undone now, that kind of thing. And that's what this was akin. It's like shed blood seals the covenant. So chapter 15 walks us through that ancient custom. Chapter 17, again, it's a long passage, 21 verses again. And there in chapter 17, he establishes circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And then he clarifies that the heir is not Ishmael. It's not, it's not the son of Hagar, you know, the concubine, the servant. The son is going to be one from your wife. That old gal you live with, she's going to bear a son still. And he goes, that one, that one. And he affirms the covenant all over again. By the time chapter 22 comes along, that old gal has born a son. They've named him Isaac. And in chapter 22 is, is just this unthinkable, this unimaginable, this thing where people go, well, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how they do that. And he says, that son, that one and only son, that one that I promised you, the one that I said you're going to have descendants through, that son, take him to this particular place, to Mount Moriah, and there, sacrifice him. We're going to study that when we get to it. Basically, it says the next morning, Abraham got up and took his son. And then when he arrived, he, you know, the story is he raises the knife and the angel says, stop. And there's a ram that's supplied as a, as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And there, in that passage, in chapter 22, verses 15 through um, 18, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, by myself I have sworn to care of the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there's the passages that take this Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and then unpack it. And, and, and develop it more fully and amplify it, as the word theologians like to use. You know, it just talks about it more, explains more about it. And in all these passages, you could categorize the covenant into three areas. Abraham, first of all, it's talking about him and his seed. And then and the second one is his seed, Israel, the nation. And the third part of the covenant would be to the Gentiles. So today, I want us to see how those things are all the way through the Bible and how they've been, they've been true and how God has continued to keep his promise to his people. So the very first one, Abraham. Abraham, there, to what he does for Abraham, he says, first of all, there's three parts of this. What I told you is you're going to possess this land. And that other nations are going to come from you. Ishmael. And then on top of that, he has another wife after Sarah dies, Keturah. And other nations come from Keturah. The Midianites come from Keturah. And then he says to Abraham, and your name shall be great. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about how 52% of all the world's population consider Abraham to be a significant person in their religious system. Jews, Christians, and Muslims. His name is great. To his seed, the second part of it, he says there, to the seed Israel, your nation will become great. You'll possess the promised land. 
You're going to have victory over your enemies. This particular promise is not totally fulfilled yet because they have not had total victory over their enemies. Granted, since 1948, nobody has taken that little boy on the block and ever taken him out. You know, they've tried. Many times they've tried, but no one's ever done it yet. And so they, ha- they have had victory to a degree over their enemies. And they've possessed some of their land. But there's a day and a time coming when they will possess all of their land again, and they will have ultimate victory over all of their enemies. That particular promise is still unfolding. And then finally, to the Gentiles. To that promise there, first of all, he says to, his, to them, he says that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And then he says, and then there is a spiritual blessing coming to the Gentiles through the Messiah. Now, this Abrahamic covenant has spiritual and physical blessings. You just saw it right there into the, the blessing to the Gentiles. The physical blessings are limited only to the Jews. Only the, I mean, you're only Jewish if you're Abraham. I mean, like, you know, you can be married to a Jew, but that doesn't make you a Jew. Larry, he's Jewish. Cindy, she's Goy. She's a Gentile, right? That's all there is to it. She's Italian something or another, right? But being married doesn't make her a Jew. That promise to the seed only extends to Larry. It only extends to Peru's and Mitra. It doesn't extend to anyone else in this room. The, the land, that land is given to his people, the Jews. But the spiritual promise is given to Gentiles. That's anyone who's not Jewish. That is all the rest of the world. That promise is made that he's going to bless all the peoples, all the families of the world through Abraham, through the Messiah. And so there is where we get the spiritual blessing of being grafted into Israel, of becoming part of that family because of Christ and because of the blessing he gives us. Each of these elements of the Abrahamic covenant are elaborated and they're fulfilled throughout the Bible. So, for instance, let me talk to you about the one, the land covenant, the one about this is your land. This one has also been called the Palestinian Covenant. And that's a terrible, terrible name. I will never call it the Palestinian Covenant. Because, because, because Israel is Israel. And Israel became something else by name only through the anger and through the retribution of the, of the Romans. In AD 132, 134, there was another revolt. It's called the Second Jewish Revolt. And the Jews revolted against the Romans, and they had some degree of success. But by this time, Emperor Hadrian had become so fed up with the Jews and with all of their nonsense and with always being a thorn in his flesh and always being a problem, he walked back in, and he took Jerusalem, and he took it down stone by stone by stone by stone. And you can go there today. And there is still one part of the wall. Matter of fact, this is what he did. He says, I will make it so that you will never come back here. Matter of fact, you're not allowed to read your Torah anymore. You're not allowed to practice Judaism anymore. You're not allowed to live in this city anymore. He, he, he removed them all. During the course of that revolt and his repercussions to it, 580,000 Jews were killed. 50 fortified cities were torn down. 985 villages were burned to the ground. Additionally, more and more Jews died of famine and disease. His purpose was to de-Judify, take all the Jews out, 
and erased them. He tore the city down. He killed the Jews. He dispersed them all over the nation, all over the empire. And in part to do that, one of his things he did is he took Jerusalem and he put up false gods, a statue of Jupiter there. And he says, there's no more of your people, no more of your gods. We're going to make this a temple to my God now. What's left of it? And he said, and he tore down the temple. He left a wall. And he says, this wall, you're allowed to come and celebrate one time a year. One time a year. On the day of Tishba. Say that word for me, Peruse. Yeah, what he said. All right. (laughs) You're allowed to come and to this wall one day a year, not to worship, but to weep and to mourn for what you've done to yourself. That's why that wall was called the Wailing Wall. In 1967, that wall went from the Wailing Wall to the Western Wall. Because in 1967, in the, in the 67 War, in the Six-Day War, Israel, for the first time in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, took possession of Jerusalem all over again. And there are pictures that are just full of emotion of these Jewish soldiers still in their full-blown battle gear, dirty, sweaty, who are weeping at that wall, not because it is all that's left, but because it's once again in the hands of Jews. Beautiful, beautiful images. That wall, it's an 87-foot-high section of the ancient wall. You see it right here. I don't have my pointer. The golden dome there, that's the top of the Temple Mount. All those trees there you see, and the golden dome there, that's the top of the Temple Mount. That's where Solomon's temple was at one time. Herod's temple was at one time, up there. After the Jews lost control of the temple area, um, eventually Muslims came in, and that's the Dome of the Rock, the big golden thing is the Dome of the Rock. Off on this end, there is a mosque there called Al-Aqsa, over there, yeah, where that green thing is. That wall right below it there, that is the western wall. That is the, that is the wailing wall, as they say. It's divided between a court for the women and a court for the men. And they come, and any day you go there, there'll be people there praying. And on Friday night, they'll go there and they'll celebrate Shabbat. There. They'll come and have weddings there. We've seen weddings there. We've seen, when we've gone, we've seen also um, uh, uh, bar mitzvahs there. And that's, that's this wall that Hadrian left up and says, this is where you can come and you can mourn what you've done to yourself. And so what he did was he named Jerusalem. I mean, let me see if I can say the name correctly. Um, Ayala Capitola. Eh, I'm working on it, okay? Capitolina. Ayala Capitolina. And then to rub it in to the Jews, he took the name of Israel and he says, you're not Israel anymore. Matter of fact, now I'm going to name you after your arch enemy. And he named them Palestine, which is a Roman version of Philistine. There are no such things. This is going to come as a shock to you because it was to me. There are no such things as Palestinians. You can go to, you can go to Ancestry DNA. You can go to 23andMe. You can go anyone you want to to try and find someone who says, give me the DNA of a Palestinian, and they won't give you one. They'll give you the DNA of Arabs who have relocated and lived in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
But you won't find a Palestinian because there isn't one. You'll only find Jews. And you'll only find Arabs. And you'll find that this land belongs to the Jews because God promised it. And he does not break his promises. Matter of fact, I showed you a t-shirt recently that is great. So let me, don't show this, don't do it yet. So if you go onto Google and you type in a word and you miss, and you, and you, you spell it wrong, it comes back and says, did you mean, right? Everyone done that, right? Now the t-shirt I showed you two weeks ago, that was from the Jewish quarter. This t-shirt is from the Palestinian quarter or the Arab quarter. And this is the t-shirt you could buy in any shop in the Arab quarter of Jerusalem, where they say, you, they say, Israel? Oh, you mean Palestine. <laughs> no, we mean Israel, because God meant Israel. The Romans meant Palestine. The world dominators today, the governors, the kings, the emperors, the UN, they might mean Palestine, but God means Israel. <laughs> and God meant Israel when he said Israel will own this land, and it will always be Israel's land. So, like, when you listen to your news, once again, like I told you a couple weeks ago, when you hear your news and they talk about that this land belongs to the Palestinians, you're getting a cosmic, supernatural news broadcast where the forces of good and bad, spiritual warfare, is being played out in that land. Why do Arabs want that land? Why do Muslims want that land? Not because they care, but because supernatural forces are always, Satan is always after disrupting, usurping, getting in the way of God's plans. At least he thinks he is. And for a while it might look that way. But it will never be that way. Because one day in God's eternal plan, he will take the promise he made in Genesis 12 and he will unfold it. And there will be no Palestine there. There will be God's unfolded plan of giving the land to his people all over again. Okay, I really like talking about that. He goes on, he talks about it again, and he talks about it again in Deuteronomy 30. He talks about it again in Ezekiel 16, about how God has chosen Israel as a holy site, a chosen place for his people, and someday a new Jerusalem will ascend. All right, the next one is the Davidic covenant. This covenant was one made to David. You're going to find it in 1 Chronicles 17. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, he's speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled that you may go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one from your descendants after you, who will be, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who is before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall last forever. Is he talking that Solomon? So here he is. He's saying to David, the one who came before you, that's not the one I picked. That was Saul. There's another one coming after you. He's going to build a house, and I am going to establish that kingdom forever. That one's Solomon. So is he saying that Solomon, he's going to sit on a throne forever? No. He's speaking about Solomon's seed. He's speaking about the descendants of David and Solomon. And so you look at your genealogies of Luke and Matthew, and where do they go back to? They go back to David. They go back to David. And so this Davidic covenant says that someone from your descendants, David, will always be on the throne of Israel. 
Now then, is there anyone sitting on the throne of Israel now? I like Netanyahu. I know he's in hot water, but I like the guy a lot. But he's not the seed of David because Jesus was set on that throne. And Jesus is the seed of David. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. That's what the Davidic covenant says. We're familiar with that. Many of us are. And this is just that furtherance of of Genesis 3. There is someone who's coming who will crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised. That's Jesus. And so here's Genesis 3. There's someone coming, Noah and his line. He's the only family who brings that line forward. Abraham now has been said, you're the family and you're coming after you, David, to Jesus. This is the redemption of the world coming forth. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. The new covenant is speaking now about the covenant to the Gentiles. Two places in Scripture where you can see it, Jeremiah 31 and Ephesians 2. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's going, that covenant I made at Mount Sinai, the law, and all of that that came out of the time with Moses, all of that covenant that I made. There's a new one coming. And it's not going to be anything like the other one because the other one is the stuff you had to do. The new one that I'm bringing about, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And it's not going to be a covenant written on stone. It's going to be a covenant that's going to change the heart of a man. And that's what he says in the passage. But this But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I'll remember their sin no more, he says. Ephesians 2 expands on that to to factor us into that promise. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, you were the uncircumcised, by those who are circumcised. In other words, you are the unclean, you are the Gentiles to all the Jews. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You are separated from the promise, he says, from this covenant, he says. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. He made the Jews and the Gentiles into one. And he broke down the barrier that divided them by abolishing his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments. So that in him, he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. There is a, a, a theology that is common that you might have heard about, and it's called a couple of different things, replacement theology. And what replacement theology says is that all the promises to Israel have been eradicated because they, they disobeyed, because they didn't keep the promises. Well, none of these promises that we're talking about here depended on, on Israel to do that. God says, I will make a promise to you no matter what you do. So there's a theology out there that says, well, Israel has given up all of their promise. And the church has now become Israel. So all the things that God promised to Israel, that's really they belong to the church now. There's a whole lot into all that stuff. Let me just tell you, God is a promise. God is a promise keeper to his word. And he said the land belongs to the Jews. The Gentiles have become part of Christ. 
that your seed would be as many as the seashore. None of that stuff is just an image. Those are promises, real promises. And so when you bump into Larry, when you bump into the Abirs, when you bump into anybody who is Jewish, you're bumping into the fulfillment of that promise. That they are still here. That he has kept them alive. He's kept them back in the land now. That is the fulfillment of that promise. Can God forget or withdraw from his covenant or promise? Isaiah 49, 15, which I read in the first part of the service there, he says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and, and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The Hebrew term used for covenant in English basically means to, to bind. It means it is it's just like cemented together. And so when he makes a covenant, it is binding. And he does not undo that covenant. He doesn't go back and say, I've changed my mind. And the other part of the equation is this. Is he, nor does he say, this covenant is dependent upon how, how Kevin's going to behave. It's going to depend on how Chris behaves. No, he says, this covenant depends on me, not on you. So regardless of what the Jews do, because what's going to happen is this, Abraham, I'm going to take your people, I'm going to shift them off to Egypt for 400 years, I'll bring them back. And then later on, because I know what they're going to do, later on, they're going to get really rebellious, they're going to really worship all other gods but me, and what I'm going to do with that is I'm going to punish them and take them out of the land. But there's always a remnant. There's always a few. And I'll bring them back to the land. In 1948, he brought them back to the land. After... Hundreds of years, he demonstrated that his covenant was binding. This past week, a few of us went and saw a movie called Tortured for Christ. It's a story of Richard Wormbrand. You might be familiar with him. He was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs ministry. Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania when the communists came in. He spent 14 years in prison, being tortured. And in the movie, two things stood out to me. One was the absolute, resolute evil and brutality of one man on another without hardly any apparent remorse or flinching to be that way to another man, woman, or child. That stuff disturbs me. I don't like it. But you got to know about it. You got to understand it. But the other thing that stood with me was the resolute, the absolute no questioning of their faith. The absolute no doubting of their situation. The absolute unwavering commitment to follow Christ at all cost, no matter what it was going to cost. No matter what. I sat there and I watched them as they did church in an apartment, knowing that anyone who came through that door could be a spy and could report them. And thinking, you've got your son in that situation. And thinking, in our day and age, and I'm going to say this, and, and, and you can argue with me all day long, and I know you're right, but I think I am too. And working with a mission agency for eight years and working with missions, missionaries come home off the field all the time. All the time. Because, it's, because it sounds like it's getting violent over there. And we could be in danger. 
And we sit around here and we go, I won't even send my kid down in Philadelphia. So yeah, that's nothing wrong with that. This is the honest truth. This is the honest truth. The gospel has been spread because people said, I'm, I know it's dangerous, but this is what we have to do to spread the gospel. And so Richard Wormbrand could have closed his mouth and sent his kid off someplace or done something to try and protect his family. But he said, this gospel is so preeminent that I cannot not speak. I have to speak, even if it endangers my children. Adoram Judson was a missionary in Burma. He had more children that died on the mission field than had ever lived. And in our day and age, the first one that would have died, they would have come right back here to the States and says, it's just not safe. It's just not safe. Wormbrand, in one story that they tell, every night at 10 o'clock they came and checked. And every night at 10 o'clock, and you were not allowed to pray in prison. And every night at 10 o'clock, he would position himself in front of the door, in front of the little window box where they'd open it up. And he'd be right in front of that door, and he'd be like this, so they knew what he was doing. And every night they'd drag him out and beat him. Every night. And one night the guard sees him praying, and he swings open the door violently, and he's screaming. He went, what are you doing? Why are you praying? We beat you. What could you be praying about for this many years? And Warren looks up and goes, I'm praying for you. And the guy melts in the face of his devotion in the face of his love for his torturer. And in this scene, he stumbles out and closes the door. What makes missionaries go to places that are unthinkable? What makes Joe Darrow move his family from comfortable, lily-white Bucks County and to move into Kensington and raise a family down there? It's, I think it is. It's because this thing we're talking about, this, this covenant, changes the worldview of you in such a way that you say, my life is not my life. My life is his. He paid for it. He bought it. Anything he wants to do with it is fine. Anything he wants to do with it, it's his to do it with. Because I know that he will redeem me one day. And if my life is snuffed out right now, I will be with him today. It's what Paul said, is it not? I believe that those people are that resolute and and even apparently fearless, although you know that there's fear involved, but apparently fearless because they believe they belong to a God who's made promises that will not be broken. Promises that I have everything under control. Promises that everything I do is for the good. Promises that says that I am working toward bigger things than you can understand. Promises that says that, that you cannot fathom. My ways are not your ways. And I have great and glorious things in store. Jay Gresham, Macon, Machen, how do you say that? Machen? Um, he said the covenant is an expression of God's will, not man's. Man must listen to its terms, trust God that they are holy and just and good, and order his life accordingly. Abraham believed the covenants 
He believed that God said, this son, this kid, this Isaac, that this old woman just bore to you, that one right there is going to be the one that I use to give you descendants that will number the more than the stars and the sand on the sea, on the seashore. That son will be. So when Abraham goes to bed one night and God wakes him up and says, hey, in the morning, wake up and watch him up to Moriah and sacrifice him. Abraham's like going, that covenant is true. It cannot be broken. I don't care what he told me to do today. I'm going to go do it because that covenant is true. And so he marched up there and did it. And God intervened. It doesn't mean he always will. But God intervened. People do the unthinkable because they know that they belong to a God who has made promises to them that cannot be broken. And so for us, no one in this room is going to go to prison today for walking out and praying over your lunch. And yet we don't do it. And then I'm going to be so far as to say this. So, if you believe in your heart of hearts, in your gut, that God told you to tell you your coworker or your boss, I'm praying for you, and you fear you'll lose your job. Who made the promises to you? Who's in charge of your life? That boss? That coworker? No. No. The covenant maker is in charge of your life. The one who says, I have everything under control. Speak truth. Speak love into that situation. And it might look really dark. It might look really bad, but I'm in charge, and I will hold you, and I will take care of you. Interesting, when we get to Genesis 22, that Abraham tells Sarah, the boy and I. Now, what he's just done is he's gathered the wood, he's gathered the knife, he's got the donkey, he's got a servant, he's putting the boy, well, the boy, the boy, he's, he's, he's Mikey's size, He's not a boy. He's not a lad. He's Mikey's size. He's a big dude. And he says to him, he says, we're going to go. And he doesn't tell Sarah, we're going to go up and I'm going to sacrifice your son. The verse says, we are going to go and worship. What? The God who's a promise-keeping God is worthy of worship and no matter what he calls us to do. And when we obey him, we, we worship him. We worship him because what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? I know this looks crazy. I know. I know this doesn't make any sense at all. But I worship you. I proclaim you as being a covenant-keeping God. I proclaim you as being a promise-keeping God. I proclaim you as having everything under control because I'm going to go forward and do the unthinkable. I'm going to go forward and do this stuff that makes no sense at all. But it does make sense when a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, sovereign God says to do it. And because of Abraham's ultimate obedience, we're talking about him today, and he is the father of our faith too. This morning, God gives us a certainty about life. He gives this kind of, of certainty, this kind of believing him gives martyrs the courage to suffer without bitterness or resentment. My life is not my own. It belongs to him, the covenant keeper. It gives you and I the courage and the determination to make smaller decisions and grow in our faith to make bigger decisions and to follow him. And the promise of Isaac that, that he took him in Genesis 22 and offered him up and then was, received him back, that promise of 
Isaac being the one that the generations are going to come to. The reason that Isaac is the reason we're here today, that, that promise of Isaac did not fail Abraham. It did not fail Sarah. It did not fail us. The promise of the Messiah was true. He came. He lived a sinless life. He died a wrong death. He suffered and he, res- and he, and, and he died for our sins and then he resurrected. And next week we'll celebrate all of that. That promise said that you and I are, were separated by God. Ephesians 2 said you are separated from God. But Jesus makes it possible for you to be in a relationship to him. This morning, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, I'm asking you to do it today and this time right now. If you're here today and you're not sure what would happen to you in the next life, I'm asking you to today, in this moment, nail that down. Because by placing your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins through his death, he guarantees forgiveness of sin. He guarantees to wash you of all the shame, of all the guilt, of all of the dirtiness of your life and bring you into new life. And not only in this life, he gives you hope for the next life. That's what these martyrs live for, is because their life in this life is to obey him because in the next life they're with him. His promise is one that extends from this life into the next. And today, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, then I pray today you would do that now. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. I'm going to ask us to... Just have a moment of silence. And, and if you've never trusted Christ, there's no magic potion. There's no magic words to do. There's no, you don't have to come down front. You don't have to stand up, sit down. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to look at me and blink or anything else like that. What you have to do is in your heart of hearts in this moment say, I don't know you. Just talk to God as honest as you can. I don't know you, and I need to fix that, and I'm not sure how that works, but I need to know you, and I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I've done things wrong and I need your forgiveness and I believe that Jesus gives that to me. Whatever you're going to say, he understands your heart and your intent. And in this moment right now today, I'm pleading with you to reach out to him for that salvation. Let's bow our heads. Right now, if you've never done that, I'd pray that right now you would talk to Christ, talk to God and just explain to him that you're separated and you know it and you, you want to fix that. That you want to place your faith to believe, to trust in Christ and his death as the forgiveness of your sins. In your own words, talk to him right now. Father, this morning, we cannot even begin to fathom the difficult, heartbreaking decisions that people have made to obey you and to follow you. But we believe that they do so because they have an unflinching belief that you keep promises. And the promises you made in the Old Testament and the New Testament extend to us as we sit in these chairs here today. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that is uncertain about their relationship with you today, that they would take that uncertainty out and 
would cling to you, would reach out to you in this moment today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.